So yes, thank you, Owen and Cooper. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, worship team, kids, choir. It is so good to, to worship the Lord. So I want to start, and I need to start by saying, Happy Mother's Day, especially since it's quite possible my mom is watching on live stream right now. So mom, happy Mother's Day. I'll, I'll try to remember to call. Um, secondly, I, I do want to say this is part three of the series on the parable of the prodigal son. Even though the reading wasn't directly on the prodigal son, we're still covering it today. In fact, what we're going to be looking for is what's not in the prodigal son story, the missing element. And I'm using some insights based on Timothy Keller's The Prodigal God Book. So uh, hopefully, I know some of you are reading that along with me. Hopefully you're, you're kind of seeing things in it. But can I start this morning by showing you my favorite board game as a kid? So I, I don't think I got this from my parents. I think I got it from my grandparents. But I got Titanic, the board game. Now, it's a bit macabre board game for kids because the ship sinks, of course. And uh, the way it works is you are a crew member on the game, and you have to go around the ship and get, get people out of their cabins. You go to their cabin right, on the ship, and as the ship sinks, you are going from cabin to cabin to try to rescue them. Hey, by the way, the ship is sinking. You might want to come with me. And, and so in the midst of the game, every time you roll a one or a six, the ship goes a little further down until it finally goes. So, so in the midst of the game, um, in a sense, you're bringing good news, right? Yeah, yes, the ship is sinking. There, there's a a thing to be reckoned with. But the good news is there are lifeboats and there's plenty of room on them, right? And you're helping them get to the lifeboat, helping them get to a place where, where they can be rescued. And so that is, in essence, I think a great picture of, of our, our work as disciples of Jesus Christ, right? We believe we've been given good news, a message that, that, that points people that, that there's a lifeboat, right? Yes, this world can be full of hardship. And we know at some point, death will come for us all. But good news, there is a lifeboat that you can get in and that will lead you to, to safety, lead you to everlasting life. And so God, out of his great love for us, made a path to everlasting life. And that's ultimately, when we're talking about this whole series, that's what it's about, right? That God, through Jesus, was bringing eternal life to people that need it. And we're, we're given the chance to bear that message forth. So in the, the parable of the prodigal son, you remember there's two sons. It's the story of the younger brother who goes away, the prodigal son, and the elder brother um, who... Is, is resentful when his, his younger brother is forgiven and received back to the father. And so again, we're going to look at what is the missing element. And we're going to start, as we've done, really all three of these sermons so far, is looking at the context, which is the first two verses of Luke 15, where it says the tax collectors 
and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus. In other words, those who are far away from God, the non-religious people, right, those who didn't show up at synagogue, they were connecting with Jesus. In fact, it says he was eating with them. And the religious leaders objected to that. And they say, why, why are you, why is Jesus, they grumbled saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus is responding to the critique, the criticism of the, the Pharisees and scribes. And in response, he tells three parables, not just the prodigal son, but, but three total parables. So we read the first two, and then the third one's the prodigal son that we, we didn't read this, this Sunday. And, and so the first one is known as the parable of the lost sheep. And each of these three parables have similar elements. And you could sort of see the pattern. So the first one is there's a man with 100 sheep. One of them is lost. That shepherd goes and searches for and seeks out the lost sheep. He finds the sheep. He brings it home. And then there's a celebration. Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. Okay, that's story number one. Story number two. There's a woman with 10 coins, 10 silver coins of of some value, right? One is lost. She sweeps the house and searches for it. She finds it, and then she restores it to its rightful place. She would have probably had a place to put her 10 silver coins. And then there's a celebration. Rejoice with me, I found my last, my, my lost coin. So those are the first two parables. And the third parable there's a man with two sons. One is lost. The, that son, the prodigal son, it says, he comes to his senses. In other words, he finds himself when he's in a far-off country, and he returns home, and there is a celebration. Did you see the missing element in the third parable? Right? If you were listening along it, when Jesus was telling these, you'd have heard him talk about the, the lost sheep parable, right? They, he searched for the sheep and found it and brought it back home. The woman who swept her house, and it really emphasizes there how hard she worked to find that lost coin. And then you would have got to the point in the parable of the, the prodigal son where it says how hard the son went. He, the son went to a faraway country and how hard life was and that he was starving to death and no one gave him anything. What would you have expected to happen in that parable if you were following the pattern? Someone to go search, seek after the lost son, and, and encourage him, invite him, bring him back home. And who would you have expected to go do that? Maybe not the father. Right? The father kind of holds down the fort. The brother, the rightful one who, who should have gone and brought, brought the prodigal son back home was the elder brother, right? Out of, out of concern for his younger brother, out of, out of sympathy with his father whose, whose heart aches for his, the lost son, the, the, a good elder brother would have gone and sought out his younger brother and tried to convince him to come back. The problem with the prodigal son, 
beyond the fact that he made some bad life decisions, is that he's a crappy elder brother. Jesus told the story on purpose and, and told it the way he did on purpose because for the, the Jewish people in that time, um, ones who maybe were distant from God and ones who maybe weren't connected into the religious life, the synagogues, or weren't seeking God, maybe some who had made bad life decisions, they had those problems, but they had another problem. They had crappy religious leaders. And Jesus was calling them on it. And who were they? Talks about the Pharisees and the scribes. The, the, to be a scribe was to be an expert in the, the law, right? You were literate, you were able to read. So, so you were, in a sense, you were a Bible teacher. Not everyone could be literate in those days. And the Pharisee were, Pharisees were a group of, of Bible teachers who were very strict in their adherence. And so they kind of, they had the Old Testament law, and so they were the ones who would interpret it. So in Matthew 23, Jesus outright talks about the, the Pharisees and scribes, and he says to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Now, there was no literal seat from Moses. At the time of Jesus, Moses was like 1,400 years earlier, 1,200 years or so. Um, what he's saying is the, mo, the law of God, the law of the Bible was given in the time of Moses, through Moses. And so it was often called the law of Moses. So to sit in Moses' seats meant they were the ones entrusted to, to interpret the law given to Moses and bring it to the people. So they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, you know, don't just reject what they say. Um, don't, uh, says, says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. And Jesus laid out nine critiques of the Pharisees and scribes. I'm going to give them to you quickly. Uh, we could dig into each one of them. The first one, the first critique is that they are hypocrites, meaning they tell people to do one thing, but they themselves don't do it. Maybe like a, a politician telling you to reduce your carbon footprint as they have five houses. You know, something like that. Um, the second critique they made knowing the Lord a heavy burden, right? It says they, they put on, he you tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's sh shoulders. They made it so that the average person could not keep the law as they interpreted it, right? They, they, they didn't have jobs. The scribes and Pharisees could spend all their day doing all the ritual cleanings and everything they're supposed to do. The average working person couldn't devote that kind of time, and they made it so that they could not, could not successfully manage life. The third critique, it says, they sought places of honor for themselves. Right? They love to, to have the recognition as as religious leaders, as pious and holy, and they, they prayed so that people would see them. That was what's important to them, not serving God and helping people. The fourth critique he laid out, he said, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourself, nor do you let anyone else. They make it so people can't get to God. 
They made it harder for people to come into a relationship with God the Father. The fifth critique, you disciple people into legalism. They were making disciples, the Pharisees and and scribes, but what did they do? They taught them to be the same way they were, to be these these legalistic jerks who who didn't, didn't have the love of God in their heart. The sixth critique, they, they fashioned the rules for their own benefit, right? They, they adjusted the rules so that they, they actually could, you know, gain from it. And they would twist laws and they'd make exceptions for themselves, but, but they would not do it for others. Seven, he says, you neglect the more important parts of the law. They would do things like they would tithe on their herb garden, right? You, you, you do these little things, these things, that, these small parts of the law, but you neglect the things that are really important. Eighth critique, they were only about outward appearance and not true holiness. It says many times that you're, you're, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. And the last they were working against God. God himself was bringing the kingdom through his son Jesus, and they were actively opposing what God was doing. I'd encourage you, if you get some time, read, read Matthew 23 on your own, and maybe assess, did, did I get these nine critiques? Are they fair to what Jesus was saying about them? So in, back to our parable, what I would suggest is the scribes and Pharisees were the crappy elder brother. And the missing element from the parable of the prodigal son was a true elder brother. One who would have gone out in love for the father to go seek after his brother. About five or six hundred years before Jesus' time, there was a prophet named Ezekiel. And the leaders in Ezekiel's time were also corrupt and not faithful to, to doing the work. And they're called the shepherds of Israel, right? Because they're watching over God's sheep for them. And it talks about how they, they, gained their, they gained the system so that they could feed off the sheep. And Ezekiel 34, God says this. He says, I, there, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. He goes on to say, I will remove them from being over the sheep. But, but here's the thing. So what's God going to do? If he if he's, takes away the shepherds, how's he going to fix the situation? How's he going to resolve it? And, and I love this. Verse 11, 34, 11. It says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. The Lord, the eternal God, says he will come himself to be the good shepherd, to seek out the lost sheep. 500 years before Jesus, that's the description of what he would be doing. And what does Jesus do? He says, my, my mission, what I've come to do is to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the living out of Ezekiel 34, 11. While the elders... Uh, and leaders of the people were, were not doing it. They were not bringing care to, to those in need, the, the lost and the hurting. 
Jesus said, I'm going to come myself and search for the sheep. Jesus is the true elder brother. And when Jesus told his parable, he's not in it himself. Right? He's, he's the missing element of his own parable. Jesus came to extend God's grace to those left out, to those far away from God. I, I keep putting up that picture, the one on the left with the, the mountain. I just love that picture because that's what Jesus did with his death and resurrection. He blasted a hole through the mountain that was keeping people from God. And now it's the cross, it's, it's his death that opens the way that anyone can get back to, to, to God the Father. He's opened the door to salvation. And his idea was that the leaders of Israel, those given the word, those who the Bible scholars should have been with him in that mission of inviting people in, but they weren't. Instead, they were opposing what he was doing. And what I think is going on is Jesus is telling the story. He's telling it for the prodigal types to say, hey, God the Father's not against you. You can come home and know the Father. But I think even more, he's aiming it at the Pharisees and scribes. He's telling them, guys, join me. Right? You, you, there's, a, there's another option. He, here's the situation. Because the parable ends, if you remember, with the older brother deciding, is he going to come back into the feast? Or is he going to stay outside? And so Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and scribes saying, you can join me in reaching out to these people in need. Join the mission. The, I don't know how many people are watching the, the show The Chosen. Um, I've been watching it with Ben. I'm going to get my game out of here because I keep almost stepping on it. So I've been watching it with, with Ben sometimes, and I, think, I don't know if it's season one or two, but one of my favorite scenes is Nicodemus. So in the show, show Nic- Nicodemus was one of the Bible guys. He, is, he was a Pharisee. Right? And he's a Pharisee who had a, a conversation with Jesus. And, and so he was open to what Jesus was doing. And at one point in the, the chosen TV show, Jesus invites Nicodemus, hey, come with me. Join me. Get, you know, get, join my group of disciples. Join us on the road. And Nicodemus almost does it. He wants to but he just can't quite. He can't quite give up the status he has as a teacher of Israel. He can't quite give up the comforts of his life as someone who's more wealthy and and established. And so he almost goes with Jesus to follow him. That, That scene really gets me when they showed that. Jesus told another parable about what's gonna happen in all this. And in the other parable that reflects on the Pharisees and scribes, it talks about what will happen because they didn't join him. And so Matthew 21, 43 says this, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. That's not talking about the Jews in general. It is specifically aimed at the Jewish leaders who are going to, um, instead of joining with the Son of God, they were going to oppose and plot his death. So if they weren't going to join in the kingdom, who would it be given to? Who are the others 
that would produce the fruit of the kingdom. What's, what's Jesus saying? Well, in John 15, it tells you. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I love this passage. He says, no longer do I call you servants. A servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends because everything that I've heard from my father, I've passed it on to you. This mission that I have from the Father, I've passed that on to you. I've taught you what you need to know to join me, to be servants of the kingdom, to be a part of this this mission. And then verse 16 says, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's who the kingdom would be given to those who become disciples of Jesus Christ, who, who by great, his grace come to realize that their brokenness and sin, and they realize the great forgiveness that they have through him, and they become so convinced and, and swallowed up by God's love that they can't help but want to share that grace and love with, with the people in, in this world. That's who has the kingdom brothers and sisters, you are called to join in the work of reaching out to people with the good news. Not to be like the elder brother who only focused on himself and who got angry and resentful when others started to come. Instead, um, you are called to have heart's compassion for the lost and the hurting and, and the broken in this world. So I, I keep throwing up this illustration as well. And it's crudely drawn, I admit, but it's a ship. And I, I love this description of what a, a church congregation can be like. And it's actually kind of the opposite of the Titanic. In the Titanic, you're saying, hey, we better get off the ship um, before it sinks. The, this is the, the rescue ship, right? And it's, it's people are out there in the water, and the goal, the mission of the ship is to, to reach out and find those people and pull them on to safety, to, to seek after those who are hurting. And, and so that's the purpose of the ship. It's, it's, it's to find people who need Jesus and are ready to, 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 to accept his grace and bring them on board. And the point of the, the thing is the ship works together, right? There's different jobs on the ship, and everyone kind of has a different part in it. But the mission of the ship is the same, to rescue the lost, and uh, to help people get connected to the salvation of Christ. And so what I want to say, and part of this is, this is not a cruise ship. If, if you've been brought on board, that means you're part of the crew. You know, there's no like, hey, I'm on board, I get to lounge in a deck chair, and people will bring me, you know, mimosas or whatever. No, if you've been brought on board, if you have accepted the grace of Jesus Christ and become his disciple, you got a job, right? It's, it's not just, you know, the job of the professionals. Now, friends, I realize um, that for you this is tough because you have such an amazing pastor who's so good-looking and erudite and theologically brilliant and, and most of all, incredibly humble that you, you just want to say, well, let's just let Pastor Mitch do it all, 
Um, yeah. <laughs> but the truth is, this is the job of all of us. And I would suggest that you have opportunities in people's lives that I'll never have. As pastor, I get labeled in some ways. And, oh yeah, he's one of them, right? So you are, you are able to draw near and bring Jesus to, to, in, in reach of people and help them connect with it. And I want you to know, if you're on the ship, you're part of the crew, and you have a role in fulfilling this mission. So yesterday, we had a group of men. We were on a mission. Uh, we were fixing up things at Benita's house and uh, putting on a roof, and uh, some of us were relegated to yard work, which is where the only thing I would probably be qualified to do. Uh, but, but it was awesome because we had like a, a dozen maybe two dozen men at one time, all doing different jobs, right? But we were all working together to accomplish the work. I love when that happens. And I love when that happens within, within the church. Nick and I went to a, a kind of a one-day conference, and the focus was on one-on-one discipleship. And it's a good reminder. It's a good, it's a good point that, that we all can be a part of making disciples. And really, disciples are made one by one. Not, you can't mass produce them just by, all right, we have a big meeting and you expelling information. Most of the time, almost all the time, disciples are made when, when you sit down with someone and you help them show them what, what Christ looks like. How might the Lord have you do that? Are you a part of making disciples? And at this conference, you talk about, like, what could that look like? It, it could be as simple as maybe you have a buddy from work who, who, as you're talking to them, you sense there's a spiritual openness. And you say, hey, could we meet for coffee for in the next few weeks and go through the gospel of Mark or the gospel of John? And let's just talk about this. Maybe you might invite someone to, to do a Bible study with you. Right. Do, do you know how to make a disciple? Then, then you got to learn. And if you don't know how to make a disciple, you need to find out someone who does and have them disciple you into making disciples. Like, like that's the plan. It's not like a big group thing. It is you learn from someone else and then you help someone else learn. It's, it's one-on-one, those kind of things. Um, you can do it. That was the one guy's theme. He just kept saying, you can do it. You can meet with someone and talk to them about Christ and help them learn that. And, and my guess is you will learn more about your faith as you try to share it with someone else than you will learn doing in-depth Bible studies um, with a group who already know. It, it, it's a risky thing. I get it. Right? You're going to be leaning out over the edge trying to pull people in. That's far riskier than like being in the middle of the ship away from where all the, the lost people are. You can do it. It is possible. Pray. So start with this. Start with this. Lord, give me someone to disciple. Would you dare pray that? Lord, give me someone to disciple, to meet with and talk about Christ. And, and just then just keep your eyes open, right, for that conversation that takes place. Pray it and see what happens. You can do it. We're meant to do it. So, 
That's, that's the challenge I want us to hear today. I, I want to talk a little bit more about this, and I'm even going to sit down because I'm going to switch gears a little and just talk about what I've been thinking in regards to being a part of this mission. And here, here's the, the main idea I want to get across. Disciples of Jesus need to have a true compassion for the lost people of this world. I think that's the gist of what, what Jesus wants to get across. Disciples of Christ need to have a true compassion for people in this world, a true heart's love. It's our, it's our heart attitude that is the key. If we try to do this mission in a sense of self-righteousness or, or self-gain, right? if we just want to get people to come to church to make our church bigger or to meet the budget, Dude, that's, that's not going to work, and it's not what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to have a true compassion for lost and hurting people. Matthew 13, 6 says this. He says to his disciples, be careful. Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, Jesus hated people to bake things. So he says, don't ever use yeast metaphor. The, the yeast is a metaphor for the teaching of, the influence of. It says, be on your guard. Don't become like those guys. And he mentioned two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We've been talking about the Pharisees all morning, right? So who's the other guys? The Sadducees were the ones who ran the temple. And the danger of the Sadducees is compromise with, with the world, the Sadducees compromised with Rome to hold on to their ability to run the temple. So that danger is you go along with what the world says. Don't, don't do that. Don't be like them. But also, don't be like these guys, the Pharisees. To put on the appearance of holiness and the, the desire to be seen as pious and holy um, rather than, than having a heart for God. To... to to have the outward things, but to miss the love of God and the love for people. That's the, the, the yeast of the Pharisees. In my years of, of being a Christian and doing ministry, I, I have, have heard the challenge and have been attuned to the danger of compromise. Of, you might say, of going liberal. Because, you know, and for good reason. Like, like, give me an example. The, the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, do you know they were all founded to train Bible, Bible preachers? Right? So at one point, these institutions were created to teach God's Word and to, and to prepare men to become leaders in the church. And at some point, they lost it, and now they're almost hostile, if not outright hostile, to things of faith. Right? That's the danger of the Saturday. And I've, uh, another example. So, so the YMCA. I, I, I enjoy the YMCA. I, I work out there. I swim there. mentioned it last week. But in the 1800s, the YMCA was created to, to share the good news of Christ. They, the YMCA were the evangelicals of their day. But they slowly, their mission became more and more towards becoming a health club. Nothing wrong with that. We need health clubs. But 
they shifted from what the true mission was. And so I've, I've always kind of heard about, and I think Christians have been attuned to, the church attuned towards, the danger on this side of, of going liberal, of compromising with the world. And what I, I, I wonder is, have we been so focused on that danger, are we, are we, are we in danger of, of falling off the other side? of this other danger, of the, that of the, the, the Pharisees. So let me, let me show you a picture. This is uh, in the Grand Canyon. It's called Mather Point. We went there this, this last summer. It's an incredible spot. It's in the South Rim, and it's a, it's a place where it's like a little isthmus. Is that saying right? Anyways, it's a little land thing that sticks out into the canyon, and so you can hike out, and you just get an incredible view, like, all the way around. But here's the problem. At one point, you're walking on this a little bit narrow path. It's not super narrow. You're, you're not in any real danger, but it feels like you're in huge danger, because, like, all you see over here is canyon falling down, and, and same over here. And I know as I walked it, I'm like, I, I got totally nervous, and I'm like, I know I'm safe, but still you feel that danger. And you can be so attuned to falling off the cliff on this side that you, you back away and fall off the other side. That's the whole point of that picture. So you can, you can go back to the other slide. Um, right? We can be so attuned to, oh, whatever we do, let's make sure we don't, we don't go liberal. We don't go whatever and... and become part of the, the compromise and we want to stay true to the world, that we end up becoming more Pharisee-like, right? Focusing on outward behavior and outward growth rather than a true heart's love for Jesus Christ. F- setting up the rules for our benefit of loudly proclaiming against sins that, w- that we're not tempted by while ignoring the sins that, that we are um, Making the idea of knowing the Lord a burden rather than, than Jesus is the one who sets us free to, to love God freely. Um, shutting people out of the kingdom. Conveying to people, you're not welcome unless you look like us. Intent on making disciples, but more into making them disciples of legalism rather than disciples of Jesus and radical followers. I think... At times, Christians, churches, and church leaders who can come across a lot like the elder brother in the story. Lots of anger, lots of resentment towards the world, lots of fear. And we aim it at people out there rather than being quick to listen and gracious in our approach to people. I think there's a danger for churches and pastors, especially evangelical, Bible-believing churches, um, because we do believe in Christ, and we do want to make sure we hold to these scriptures. At, at East Glenville, we, we are careful about what we teach, and we value sound doctrine, and, and we're not going to compromise on that, uh, and we're intent on not drifting into spiritual compromise. So it's important that we are just as attentive to beware the yeast of the Pharisees, and not neglect the more important matters of God's word. So to close, I just want to um, talk about something a Pharisee wrote. You might have heard it at a wedding of all places. 1 Corinthians 13. This is written by the Apostle Paul, who was once a Pharisee. 
and he talked about his service to God and, and what it might accomplish. And he knew that there's possible that there'd be a missing element in serving God, and he wanted to make sure that they didn't miss it, right? So it goes on, it starts by saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, as so as to, to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see the missing element? We can get our doctrine right. We can be zealous in our pursuit of faith. But if we are missing the heart of the Father and concern for people, including lost people, then we can end up with nothing. We can end up doing more damage than good. So I I have not yet mentioned a movie yet. And of course, it's obligatory. I get at least one reference in. And one of my favorite movies from the 80s or early 90s, one of those. And it's called Uncommon Valor. I'll tell you right now, it's not PG-13. Um, it, it is a war movie with the, uh, a language that fits that. So if you, di- you want to watch it, just beware of that. Um, but I still think it's a good movie. And it's about a father whose son is a POWMIA. So it's talking about the Vietnam era. And so his son was captured in the Vietnam War, and he's convinced his son is still alive in this faraway land. And he's determined, and he's given his life, the father's given everything he has to try to find his son. And he, he, he pays for research and all these things to try to, to, to locate where he's at. And when he thinks he's found him, when he thinks he knows where his son is at, he then needs to recruit a team of people to go get him. So he goes to the men who served with the son in, in his platoon, and he asks them, will you join me in a rescue effort? Will you come with me to try to, to rescue my son and, and some of the other POWs who were there? And at one point in the movie, they, they have everything that they're ready to, to launch, and then all their weapons and everything gets taken away. And, and they assume, well, it's over then. And the father says, no way. You are not going to stop me. I will go in there with nothing if I have to. I am going to find and rescue my son. And the father's heart gets captured by these fellow men. And they're willing because it's his love, his passion. They get caught up with it and they go on this mission to, to save the lost son. That's what I want for us at this church. That the Father's heart for people who are hurting, the the people maybe we struggle with, that we would have that same heart that God has for them. For the lost, the hurting, the poor, the needy, wherever they're at, and that that heart would get a hold of us. We're going to close with the song the lion and the lamb, because we're convinced. Jesus is, is the lamb who gave his life for people. He's also the lion who's determined, who's bringing his kingdom, 
and is determined to, to, to bring people into his kingdom and to, to establish and build it. And he invites us to, to be a part of that work and mission. Let me pray. Father, I, I know when we're interacting with people who are, um, whether they're friends or people we know in this world, sometimes we can get overwhelmed by the, the lostness, by the, the, the things they believe and do, by their hostility to the faith. Lord, I, I pray instead you would give us such a heart of love that that drives us to, to love them in your name. Show us how to do it and show us the way to be a part of building your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.